Good morning, everyone. Welcome to a uh, special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Larry Kay, and today is uh, September 3rd, uh, two, uh, 2023. And there goes my script here. So let me pull it back up. Hang on tight. Uh, okay. Um, the share ID numbers, let me give you for uh, September, uh, Friday, September 1st. That share ID is... Uh, or 20,592, that's the 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time meeting, 20592. And for the 10 a.m. meeting on Friday, that number is 20,593. That's 20593. This morning, A Vision for You presents the family afterwards, not running the show. So our speaker is going to uh, bring uh, the text to life for us on the family afterwards, and she's going to I know she's going to do a great job threading together um, with a focus uh, on her personal experience, insight, and strength and, and hope uh, on this particular chapter. So, you know, every family unit looks different. <laughs> Some of us come from a, a large family and, and others from a relatively small one. And there's, there's folks that, that are estranged from family members and others that have experienced the, the restoration of, of family relationships. And, you know, only my higher power knows how, how all this is going to play out. But I was thinking, you know, the, the word family, the Latin familia, right, it, it really extends beyond the people living under one roof. I mean, obviously, we know, you know, the people living under our roof here. It, it, it encompasses a broader unit, if you will. And it, it emphasizes the kind of the interconnectedness uh, and the collective well-being of, of our community, even perhaps even like a vision for you community. People refer to, you know, they say, hi, family. Um, but regardless of how we experience the construct of family, you know, here's, here's a question that, that I like to consider. You know, how has my family been impacted by my disease? And I, and I, I think also an equally valid question to ponder is, how has my family been impact, impacted by my recovery? You know, see, the, the, uh, the book Alcoholics Anonymous does lots of different things, but there's two primary things that come to mind for me this morning that it does. First, it, it certainly helps us to understand the nature of our disease, right? And in that sense, it, it helps to remove the blinders that, that you know, we've been wearing that, that block us from seeing oftentimes what's, what's right in front of us. And, and for me, the second thing the big book uh, does is it offers – an extraordinary discovery. They, they found a way out. They, they found one. <laughs> and, and, and we have a common solution to our malady. And there's a, a blueprint, if you will, for the, the, the both the acknowledgement and that we need to make about ourselves and the actions that are going to enable the sufferer to be uh, pulled from the quicksand. And, and how's that going to ha happen? Well, you know, Dr. Young uh, we heard the story he told Roland Hazard so many years ago, in fact, well before the big book was, was divinely inspired to be written. He, he, he humbly said uh, something along the lines of, you know, Roland, I, I can't help you. Go, go find a spiritual transformation. And, you know, in the chapter, There is a Solution, I'm reminded of a simple fact on page 19. It says, we, we have concluded to publish an anonymous volume setting forth the problem as we see it. We shall bring to the task our combined experience and knowledge. This should suggest a useful program for anyone concerned with the drinking problem. Now, you know, for me, afterwards, 
or, or, or subsequent to something implies there was a before, right? So, so for me, when I remain in active addiction, there's not a lot of consideration of my family afterwards. You know, my goodness, it, it's, it's my family right now in the thick of it. Even in OA, uh, they're dealing with me in my present state, which it wasn't all bad. You know, I have a disease, but they're dealing with me in my present state, not yet in a recovered state of being as, as the result of being immersed in the implementation of the steps. Now that said, what a miraculous opportunity for the family to begin to understand the nature of my illness. And, and, and then the hope of healing that a spiritual transformation guarantees. Now, again, only God knows how our family will respond. I mean, I, I have as much power to change them as they had in changing me. <laughs> Not much, right? Yet, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. We, we've undergone an evolving process of spiritual restoration. And, you know, these principles that we, we get to practice in all our affairs, those, those principles, they need to be recycled throughout my lifetime. This deal is available to anyone who is willing. So joining us this morning to elaborate on her experience with the family afterwards is Melissa C. from New York. And Melissa is, I'm going to say, beloved. Well, I know that I, I love her. Um, she is a dedicated member of Overeaters Anonymous, and she's devoted to the practice and the teaching of the 12 steps and 12 traditions. And so please join me in welcoming Melissa C. to the line this morning. Good morning. Oh, hey. Good morning, Larry. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, thank you. That's really beautiful. It's a, You know, it's really what a blessing to be part of a fellowship that I do feel you know, affection for and affection from um, my fellows, so thanks. Um, yeah, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I live in New York, um, and uh, yeah, this this chapter, I think, is a, is a very important chapter, um, and I think where it comes um, is important as well, you know, because in the title, it's afterward, the family afterward. Which um, you know, I I think it's important always when when we speak to do like a qualification, and I don't want to linger too long in you know the before, but you know, like Larry said, there's a, this is talking about the family afterward. Well, then we have to at least discuss what was it before, what's the family before, and um, you know, and I could speak for myself as a member of of my family um, that. For me before, you know, I was um, enslaved by by this disease. I, um, yes, by the food, but by um, self-centeredness and by this, this need that I had to run the show, you know, from like a little girl. Uh, you know, when I think about what does it look like if I'm running the show, you know, it was like imagining me in, in charge of the show. Well, there's no pain, there's no discomfort, there's no loss. I'm always going to get my way. Nothing will be challenging. It's soft, it's warm, it's cozy for me, right, for me. And and that was, you know, sort of the way that I approached my life. I'm, um, I'm a member of a large family. I'm the youngest child of five. And, um, 
And I'm the baby. Like that was that was very much my role in the family. I was the baby. Um and food really kept me very immature from the time I was a very, very little girl. Um, my siblings are older than me. They're close in age together and I just always felt different, separate. I wanted so much to um belong, but really more than belong, I just wanted to get my way all the time. And um and I, you know, struggled with with obesity on and off through the years because I was equally addicted to diets. I was um addicted to food and I was addicted to schemes. And so um I was either um dieting or I was binging. Um there was like nothing ever in between. And you know, I came here um because the show I was running wasn't working so well. You know, I I really think like I came in state in Overeaters Anonymous for for good, I believe, you know, one day at a time. Um not because I didn't know what to do. I I kind of knew what to do. I had been you know, educated about this disease. I had some knowledge. I had come in and out. I just didn't have the power to do it. And I failed to understand that I was going to have to completely surrender. And what that meant was I was not going to run the show. Yes, surrender my food. Yes, surrender my schemes, my diets, all of that. But really, ultimately, I was going to have to surrender um, getting my way. Um, because getting my way didn't work. You know, getting my way um, was killing me. <laughs> so I'm going to, you know, with that, I'm going to jump into the family afterwards. And I'll just say that, you know, it's nearly 10 years that I have um, been entirely abstinent. And I have been relieved of over 160 pounds. I live in a normal-sized body. And I think I've become rightly sized, yes, in my physical body, but also in hopefully in the role that I play in my family. Um, so, you know, this chapter is packed. I'm going to try to, like, really get through, you know, as much as I think is, is necessary. And I pray that anything I say, you know, is um, is useful and hopefully is, you know, illuminating some of the directions. And if it's my opinion, rather than the directions, you know, feel free to disregard it entirely, right? Um, I'm not a family counselor, right? I'm not a family therapist. I'm just a woman who lives in recovery, um, who really is a fo- tries to follow the directions in the book. So on page 122, it says, wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. And this involves a process of deflation. So, you know, the whole family doesn't have to treat me with kid gloves. You know, they're afraid that I'm going to binge if they treat me just like a regular family member. Um, You know, our family members don't have to, at the afterward period, they should not be having to hide their stash of candy or tiptoe around us, afraid that if they upset us, we're going to, you know, go back to the food. And, you know, in early abstinence, it might be that people give us a free pass. Um, And that's great if they do, but um, it doesn't last long. You know, people don't um, tiptoe, nor should they, around us for long. And, 
you know, what I would say is in a, a recovered state, you know, this afterward period, that we become a loving and tolerant parent, child, sister, brother, spouse, you know, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, the book mentions the word tolerance all over the place. And I um, I like to, you know, define what it really means to be tolerant. Um, it does not mean that I'm going to somehow be able to stomach <laughs> and tolerate with this, like, ugh, feeling other people around me, you know, my family around me, as though I'm somehow so superior that I have to just stomach their presence. That's not what tolerance means. Tolerance means that I have a diminished sensitivity to other people, you know, um, to the discomfort I feel when the rest of the world isn't doing exactly what I want. And I think about it like a like a tolerance to a medication or a tolerance to a drug, you know, that the effects of it, you know, don't necessarily um, impact us quite the same way as it used to, you know, like, so over time, the things that used to get me, you know, really upset and worked up, well, as I pray for tolerance, as God gives me increased tolerance, those things don't, they really, it's not even like I have to stomach them. It's like, they're, I don't feel them personally. They're not, people are not doing things personal to me. You know, it also means that my ego is going to be deflated. Um, I was, you know, taught this wonderful term called king baby. That's what my sponsor has taught me, that there's this there's this term, uh, king baby. And king baby, um, that was me, you know. And she didn't say it in a mean way. She just said, you know, sometimes addicts are referred to as king baby. Um, and and she shared with me some, you know, like a little reading about it. And, yeah, king babies are emotionally immature. They're like demanding rulers filled with self-importance. And, you know, and I think about that being that need to be placed on a pedestal. Well, if I'm king baby, it's my high chair. Put me in a high chair and I'll pound on the table, you know, in my immature way um, and demand that others, like, listen to me. And, you know, for myself, like, okay, so I want to talk about the before a little bit. I think it's important here. What did it look like to be King Baby for me? Um, you know, uh, 14 years ago, I think my dad uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and... And my siblings and my mother kept it from me for a little bit. <laughs> and I remembered when I found out I had a fit. I had like a major tantrum, carrying on and screaming and yelling and crying, like, well, you're treating me like a baby. How dare you keep this from me? And I'm 40, you know, I'm 40-something years old. And um. And my mother said, oh, honey, we just didn't want to upset you. And I think about it now, and it's like, that's what it means to be king baby. Like, it was, I wasn't, I mean, yeah, was I crying because my dad was sick? Of course. But really, I was crying because how dare they, how dare they not tell me? And um, that is not, you know, um, my dad has since passed, but and now we're dealing, you know, with my mother who has dementia. That is not my role at all anymore. I do not behave 
that way anymore. In fact, um, good news or bad news, no one keeps anything from me, <laughs> right? No one, no one hides or protects me from any information. Um, and in fact, one of my brothers said that, um, you know, and he sort of said it, and he said it in a loving way, but he said all decisions now really, um, you know, he said, I want to consult you because you seem to be the most reasonable one in the family. And, like, how did that happen? That That is only a result of these 12 steps um, and a profound transformation. On page 122, it says, we find the more one member of the family demands that the others concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. So to concede means to admit defeat and surrender. Well, um, of course, that's going to lead to discord, you know, disagreement and lack of harmony and unhappiness because who wants to have to surrender, right, first of all? And who wants to have to surrender to a family member? And who wants to have to surrender to a family member who's been king baby, right? And... Um, and we need to make sure that we don't demand this from our families. That's been, um, for me, that no one, if I'm no longer running this show, that means people are not surrendering to me. Um, page 122 says that, and why? Like, why? Why is this? Why are we doing this? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? And, you know, this is, right, this is the title of this talk, Not Running the Show. And I think, you know, about being the stage director and how forever trying to arrange everything to my liking. And, and why? why? Why would I do that? You know, is it because I want what's best for my family? Oh, well, yeah, sometimes yes, Right. Sometimes I really do. I just want what's best for other people. But, you know, even that is flawed thinking um, because believing that I know what's best for my family and that I have all the answers, like, really, what do I, what do I really know? Like, all I know is, is my perspective. And I, I think about it, you know, this program has taught me humility, <laughs> all over the place, you know, and it really starts with step one. Because if, if I don't even know how much food to eat, what makes me think I know what's best for others? And I and I think about it like this, you know, in the morning um, I weigh, like, like for me, I have a plan where I need to weigh and measure my food. And um, and just this morning, right, I'm, I'm spooning yogurt into the bowl and I'm weighing it. And yeah, I got to actually put my spoon back in and take some out of the bowl because I'm a grown woman who who doesn't know how much food to eat. And this same grown woman has to commit my food to another grown woman on a daily basis. And this same grown woman who in a situation may have to make a change to her food as well has to relate that information to another grown woman in the moment, on a daily basis. So if that's the humiliate, you know, not humiliating, but if that's the humbling position that I not only take, every, you know, took the first day I came in here, but I take every morning, what in the world makes me think that I know anything about what's best for, for other people? Um, you know, I've had opinions and strong positions about 
where my mother was going to live. You know, we brought her up from Florida, and the initial plan was that my mother was going to live in my house. That was that was always the plan. It's been, you know, since my mother, uh, that, that was just sort of what we thought would happen. And my mother's mobility was uh, such that she couldn't live in my house. Now, with me running the show, I was trying desperately to get home repairs and home things done in my house, which sounds loving and kind to support my mother's ability to live here, right? And bending over backwards. Now, I have siblings, and along with this running the show, I was going to tell them what they were going to have to pay me in order to get this work done. And I was, you know, going to inform my husband what he physically was going to have to do to get this work done. And this is me running the show. And when God runs the show, what happens is my sister says, wait a second, my house is completely ready for mommy to move in here. There's nothing that needs to be done. Um, And that's what it looks like, you know, sometimes when I'm not running the show. Um, You know, so, yeah, was my desires good? Yeah, they were good. You know, they were coming from a spot of love. And yet sometimes, if I'm really honest, um, I don't actually care what's best for others, right? And, you know, that's the truth, that um, in a family oftentimes, like, we all just want things our own way. Sometimes I just want what I want because I want it, you know, and because it feels like it's going to be best for me. And um, But I can't live that way anymore. You know, I now have to look at the world from an entirely different angle. I have to be rid of this selfishness or it will kill me, right? Um, That's what the book tells me and that I'm to remember that selfishness is the root of my troubles and in how it works. um, On page 62, it discusses this. It says, above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. So if I'm unwilling to let go of my selfish desires to get my way, I'm actually in danger of losing my life. And that sounds really extreme, right? But is that, you know, it, because I'll tell you, it's not like I got here because things were going great for me. You know, I, I, I was losing my life. I was in a situation where um, my morbid obesity was killing me. But actually, um, and that was bad enough, but my um, my head, my thinking, my life was getting smaller and smaller. And I, I remembered thinking at one point, um, I think I'm having a stroke because, you know, I just kept having these panic attacks. And I think I'm going to, I think this is killing me. And, you know, and the other thought that I had was... Um, think I'm supposed to care and um so selfishness was was killing me and um you know and and here's the thing right knowing that I still can't necessarily do anything about that on my own but here's the good news it it says you know God makes that possible and there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of ourselves without his aid right so I need God's assistance to help me stop running the show um back you know back to page 122 it says is he not unconsciously trying to see 
what he can take from the family life rather than give. And, you know, so here it's saying that it's unconscious. So since so much of this is happening at an unconscious level, meaning it's not always deliberate. Like, it's not always deliberate that I'm trying to get my way. It feels like it's, you know, natural. How do I work around something that's not deliberate, you know? Well, we pray, you know, that that's the directions too. We pray and we ask God to help us be open to his direction. And, you know, in into action on page 86, it tells us what to do every day before we begin. We ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from what? From self-pity, from dishonesty or self-seeking motives. Those are, that's all my selfishness. And under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. So God can take my thought life, these unconscious things that I'm not even aware of, and put them on a higher plane. So what this really tells me is that if I want to desperately improve the relations with my family, then I'm going to pray for them. (laughs) You know, not that they bend to my will or do things my way. That used to be my prayer. Like, God, please let my daughter go to college. That, That was like the biggest prayer that I had. Like, God, please help her stay in school. You know, God, please help her not lose this job. Help, right? Um, But so those are not the prayers. But the prayers now is that I can be more useful to them. I, I stopped praying for outcomes. I stopped giving God the directions. And instead, I ask for his direction, for his strength, and his intuition. You know, and so, um, you know, anyone that knows me who's ever called me with um, an issue or a problem, whether it's for their kids or work-related or husband-related, which is really, it's very it's very flattering, it's very honorable to go from a position where you've been banging your fist on a high chair to someone who's, you know, who's asked for some offer, you know, from offer some assistance or counsel or advice on things, and Generally, the first thing, you know, I do is I share prayers that I have with people. And, um, you know, I'm not going to read all my prayers here now because they're, well, first of all, they're outside. It's outside literature. So some of them are my own writings, my own prayers. I take situations. But um, prayer is pretty important. And, um, you know, um, and it, you know, if you think it might not be, I would suggest, like, read the first 164 pages again because everywhere it says ask what that really means is who am I asking well I'm asking God right so that's a prayer and it's all over the book Um, and for me prayer has really given me tremendous ability to um, get out of the director's chair Um, you know um, most of the time when I pray I, I start off I thank God for the assignment of being this mother, of being this daughter, of being this wife, this sister. And then I ask God to give me direction, you know. Um, Page 122, it says, years of living with an alcoholic is almost sure to make any wife or child neurotic. 
All right, now we're going to start getting into our neurotic families. And it says that the entire family is to some extent ill. Um, Oh, boy. All right, so neurotic, right? Um, Abnormally sensitive, obsessive, tense, and anxious. And, you know, okay, so I'm talking about my family? Sounds like I'm talking about me, you know. Very sensitive, obsessive, yeah, definitely tense and definitely anxious. And and so do we, you know, does our disease kind of bleed onto our families and cause this in them? Yeah, it actually does, you know, because I think when you live with someone who's unpredictable, um, and I'll speak for myself, I was unpredictable, up and down, wildly excited and then terribly depressed. What that does is it causes a family to be tense, you know. Um, and I think, like, what did I, how did I do this? Well, in terms of the food, I'll just speak about the food to start with. Um, I was forever ridding the house of foods, swearing off the foods, because remember, I was addicted to diets, too, and schemes. And when I was on a diet and I was engaging in a scheme, everybody had to bend to my way. Nothing could be in the house that bothered me. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't invite people over. It could not be in the house. And so oftentimes I would just take everything that was in the house, I didn't care whose it was, my kids, my husband's, anybody's, and it would just all get tossed out. And um, and I would be full of a lecture, you know. Um, uh, and then, I mean, and I'm thinking to my husband, <laughs> we were laughing recently about how I used to make this cabbage soup, you know, almost regularly. Probably, you know, maybe every third Sunday I would, it was like a witch's brew. And and so all that was in my house was pretty much cabbage and, and I don't know, everything that went in to make this soup that was going to cure me of this disease, which was crazy. But um, And so what did I do? I would throw everything out of the house and swear it all off. But, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't work, right? Clearly it didn't work because what I would do next was I would have to sneak out of the house to eat what I needed to eat and and – So I was like, it was nothing in the house, and I was going out of the house to eat it. And then I certainly couldn't keep it out of the house anymore either, and I would just start bringing it in. And once I brought it in, and once I started eating it in front of other people, God helped them if they said a word about it to me. You know, so, um, yeah, that makes people really uncomfortable around them, you know, um, Overly sensitive. I was overly sensitive, and I relied on things going my way, which is bad enough, but it's even worse when the going my way changes from one minute to the next, right? On page 123, the second paragraph says that it's going to take time to clear away the wreck. Though old buildings will be eventually replaced by finer ones, the new structures will take years to complete. And it's like, oh, no, wait, years? Like, wait, like, I remembered, like, wait, I'm abstinent. Let's, and and by the way, I'll make an amend so everything, like, get better now, right? And But we're told, no, you know, that this program requires a lot of patience and diligence. And, you know, what does it mean to be patient? Like, able to accept 
and tolerate delays, problems, or suffering without getting annoyed or anxious. So I'm going to have to, like, not get annoyed and anxious and wait while things are improving, you know, and work hard to help it. And, you know, I've had to be patient for the family to notice and acknowledge the changes. I wanted to acknowledge my changing immediately. You know, I would say, like, um, as soon as I started, like, pitching it around the house, I wanted a medal. I wanted, like, a statue erected in honor of mom that's now doing the laundry, you know. And, um, um, yeah, that didn't happen, right? So, um, and I also had to be patient for my own inconsistencies in changing because I would slip back into my selfish ways and then say, oh, my God, I can't believe I just did that again. I can't believe I just had a tantrum again or I just demanded my own way again. And, um, yeah, I had to be patient, you know, and, and and what replaces the wreck is a result of the amends, the actual change, right? Amends means to change. It's not the grumblings of I'm sorry or, like, even my melodramatic promises to change. You know, when I was scraping and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, that's not it. You know, it's the living amends, that as we live our amends, things are going to get even better, Right, and page 123, the the fourth paragraph says, all right, so my first impulse, like, about the bad stuff I've done will be to bury these skeletons in a dark closet and padlock the door. Like, I, who wants to bring out into the light of day the mistakes that, that we've made, right? Um, because there's shame, embarrassment, lack of humility, all these things makes me want to hide my selfishness, that I want to hide my mistakes. I want, to, I want to hide the unattractive parts of myself. I want to hide them from you all, right? I want to hide them certainly from my family. I don't want to share them with other people because it's my instinct, like, to protect myself. And, and I thought that I needed to protect myself by hiding the truth. And, and so it was like, don't see don't tell. And um, here's the good news that, you know, just because it's an impulse, it doesn't mean that I don't have a choice anymore. Because recovery means that I am not a slave to my impulses anymore. That there's something really powerful that happens when we pause and we invite God in, that God can override my human impulses, um, so long as I'm willing and I make the effort. Page 124 um, further says that experience is the thing of supreme value in life, and that is true only if one is willing to turn the past to good account. We grow by our willingness to face and rectify errors and convert them into assets. And the alcoholic's past thus becomes the principal asset of the family and frequently it is almost the only one. Cling to the thought that in God's hands the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it you can avert death and misery for them. I mean, I just, when I read that, I get like the chills because that's just incredible to me that all the garbage 
of of our past, all the garbage of my past, all the terrible things I've done. I don't have to be ashamed. <clears throat> and I don't have to hide the truth of my experiences, even the bad ones, especially not the bad ones, because my experience can save people's lives. Like, that's my golden ticket to a life of purpose. You know, what it tells me is that this is not a waste, that my life was not a waste after all, all those years wasn't a waste, you know, because what God does is I think he takes the trash and he reshapes it and turns it into good. You know, I think about those like, it's like those recycled art, you know, you take trash and you make it into a treasure. And and think about what an incredible gift we get here. We can actually avert, prevent and ward off death and misery for other people. Um, And that's the thing that makes our dark past a treasure. What could be more valuable than that in life? It's, It's worth far more than getting my way, far more than getting my way. Bottom of page 124, it says, this is like a warning, though, that, that it is possible to dig up past misdeeds so they become a blight, a veritable plague. And a few of us have had these growing pains, and they hurt a great deal. And we think that unless some good and useful purpose is to be served, past occurrences should not be discussed. So, you know, as a member of a family, um, I have to be really careful that I don't dig things up, you know, pick apart scabs, open up scabs that are just healing um, just because we can, right? Because that's cool. I have to be careful what things I discuss, especially, you know, I can talk about some of the things I've done, but if they directly impacted, let's say, my mom or my husband or my kids, I have to be careful how I bring them up, and especially if I bring them up again to them. And likewise, for the things that they've done, that we've, you know, worked through. If if I say that I've forgiven someone of something, then I can't keep bringing up the misdeeds, that we're to leave it to rest. And, you know... And what I find sometimes is that initially I'm able to forgive something, or I think I do, and then it resurfaces. And when it resurfaces, then I'm told again that I keep praying for the person or situation. You know, I've had had an experience, really this is like a work-related experience, but, you know, families could be by and large. It could be I've worked in my, it's going to be my 26th year in the same building, and I've worked with some of those people the entire time. Um, So they're like family. And sometimes things that I thought I forgave come up again, and I say that sick man's prayer. I start it all over again. I start my two-week count again because that's what I'm told to do. Um, And sometimes it seems like I'm, you know, I get like, I don't know, a month or so reprieve, and then I'm repraying that same thing well maybe not quite that much but um prayer is important for forgiveness um page 125 says that a man may criticize or laugh at himself and it will affect others favorably 
And I think it really is incredible. We can laugh at ourselves, right? And it and I think it's really helpful to others when we don't take ourselves so seriously. I think it makes us very approachable. If I can laugh at myself and I can, you know, criticize myself, not in a not in a horribly self deprecating way, but in a way that is lighthearted to show that I don't take myself so seriously. It's useful when I'm, especially when I'm working with sponsees and those that are starting their inventory work with us. Because if I can share my own mess in a humorous way, then what I think what I'm doing is that I'm, I'm helping other fellows feel safe with me. Um, but criticism or ridicule, right, that does the opposite. Because criticism and ridicule coming from another often produces contrary effect. And members of the family should watch such matters carefully. For one careless, inconsiderate remark has been known to raise the very devil. We alcoholics are sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow that serious handicap. And remember, you know, um, I remember when I read this chapter, it's written, you know, it's sort of, it's written, I, I would imagine, to the family, helping them deal with us. But this book is for me. <laughs> I read this book for me. So I read it as recommendations for how to deal with everybody, you know, especially my family. Um, and, you know, so for me, I'm extremely sensitive. I'm the sen- sen- sensitive, self-centered one. I get offended easily. I take things personally, and it hasn't disappeared overnight. And we should remember, you know, that our families have learned how to respond. Like, I think, you know, my example as as mom, I, I taught them how to respond to inconsiderate remarks. So I have to watch how I respond. You know, I have to cut them some slack. And be really careful with my criticism. And, you know, I could say I could probably write a book about my criticism and um, and that it's real, for me it's often come masked as advice. You know, I, and I find this. If I'm going to start a conversation with, um, with um, why don't you dot, dot, dot. I'm probably about to offer unsolicited advice, which, like news alert, unsolicited advice is criticism. (laughs) If you weren't asked for anyone's opinion, that's what I find, um, and I begin to give it, what I'm really saying is the way you're doing it is wrong. Consider my way. And that, for me, is me trying to run the show in a manipulative way right? Because that's what I learned too, that it's not just standing in the middle of the stage telling everybody, screaming out the directions, but it's subtly pushing people, coercing people, trying to convince people to do it your way. And I've done that through unsolicited advice. um, And nobody appreciates being criticized. Um, I would say that has been one of the areas that um, I've really worked hard (laughs) uh, to refrain from doing, especially like with my kids, that oftentimes I want to advise them, and it is coming from a spot of love, 
because I believe that I can keep them from experiencing pain. I want to save them from pain because if I'm running the show, remember, there's no pain. There's no discomfort. There's no loss. Everything is soft. And that's not life, right? I have to trust um, that my kids are going to experience difficulties and pain just like me. Um, and that the kindest thing that I can do is is be there to love them through it, right? Oftentimes, I just have to stand by and watch. If I'm not asked my opinion, I just have to sort of stand by and watch. Um, many alcoholics are enthusiasts. They run to extremes. At the beginning of recovery, a man will take as a rule one of two directions. He may either plunge into a frantic attempt to get on his feet, whether it's in business, right, or he may be so enthralled by his new life that he talks or thinks of little else. And in either case, certain family problems will arise. With these, we have experiences galore. So I have seen and experienced for myself either being obsessed by my job, right, by my, um, and getting a lot of accolades there and getting a real hit there. And, and then, turn the page, I've been obsessed by healthy eating, right, like by reading all the ingredients and sharing all the, the negative, you know, things that are in people's foods or, or being obsessed with body-focused or, or else like even being on fire and entirely focused on the 12 steps on Overeaters Anonymous, on this fellowship. And both can leave the family wondering, um, where do I fit in with you? You know, and I, and I think um, when all our meetings, you know, became virtual, became Zoom meetings, um, there was something really powerful I saw happen in the world of recovery. I saw a lot of people get access to a lot of strong meetings and, and, and I saw a lot of people get well, and that's really exciting. But I also saw for myself this um, this uh, tip of balance. My home suddenly became a place that I could have meetings all the time, which is wonderful and important. But, um, you know, in the family afterward, right, I have to remember that if I am on a meeting, smack in the middle of a Saturday, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, in the middle of the day, or a Friday evening when I know that my husband would really like to do something together, um, that becomes a problem, you know, and that's not thinking about, for myself, I wasn't thinking about how this was impacting my husband or my kids. And we're given a warning here that we are people who run to extremes. And how do we counterbalance this again? If I ask God to direct me, what would God have me do? Right? Page 127, the family must realize that dad, though marvelously improved, is still convalescing, still getting well. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that his drinking brought all kinds of damage that may take long to repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously 
his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is love, tolerance, and spiritual understanding. So we're going to be cranky at times, right? And remember, we've made our family sick, so they're going to be cranky at times too. And we can't take it so seriously. You know, um, I, um, I think, you know, more and more this chapter just keeps telling me, get thicker skinned, get thicker skinned. Sensitivity is really self-centeredness. Get a thicker skin. You know, um, since the home, you know, has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. He's not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. So I, I think, like, let's talk about exert for a moment. Um, if you're exerting, it means you're putting forth a lot of, of effort, <laughs> vigorous action. You're exerting effort, power, all your human power, and it's strenuous. That's what it exerts. So my own spiritual growth occurs when I use effort to practice these spiritual principles in my home, right? So is it easy to do? Well, obviously not if it's going to require effort. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, and in um, the AA 12 and 12, which I love, it says here that um, – in step 12, it says, can we bring the same spirit of love and tolerance into our sometimes deranged family lives that we bring to our AA group? Can we have the same kind of confidence and faith in these people who have been infected and sometimes crippled by our own illness that we have in our sponsors? Can we actually carry the AA spirit into our daily work, into our daily lives? So, um, yeah, that's going to require a lot of work. If I'm going to start treating my family members like my sponsor, not my sponsee, but my sponsor, right, with respect, regard, you know, uh, open-minded, willing to listen, take some direction, you know, that is not easy to do, obviously, if it's going to require effort, Um you know, so how do I do this at home? What what does that really look like if I'm really going to exert effort and be unselfish? Um, well, okay, with my husband, it means that I'm going to do my best to put his needs ahead of my needs. <laughs> I'm generous with my time and um, with not having my way. And, like, I choke as I read this because I'm like, okay, this sounds really anti-feminist. And that is not who I am. Like, um, but we're also, we're not being told to become a doormat, you know. And I, I, I can fear being too given, too giving. I'm afraid of being taken advantage of, right? But I don't have to be afraid of being taken advantage of because the book also tells me that I'm not servile. I'm no one's servant. I'm not a slave. You know, as God's people, I stand on my feet. I don't crawl before anyone. But if there's a choice between two things, you know, and one choice is not going to hurt me. It's not going to mean I'm sacrificing my well-being, but it benefits my spouse more than it benefits me. And the other choice benefits just me, 
then I'm directed to demonstrate unselfishness, you know. And I also believe that, you know, in step three, where I really turned my will and my life over to the care of God, then if I live in agreement with God's will for me, and I believe God's will for me is that I love and give my family, because I believe God gave me a family to love, then I don't have to worry about such trivial concerns as being taken advantage of or being too giving and too loving. You know, God gives me boundaries. He helps me establish boundaries and guidelines. And he also helps me, you know, have strength to live within the boundaries of my own guidelines. And I often tell people, my boundaries, you know, are my responsibility to put up. They're no one else's, you know. And that comes right from God. That I believe it's part of what I pray for. Um, so how do I practice unselfishness in my home? Um, help out. I mean, right, it's, is it that simple? Yeah, I help out. You know, sacrifice our time for the benefit of others. Um, unselfishness, you know, it's the quality of thinking about what's good for other people over yourself. And it's characterized by altruism, by generosity, prioritize the family's needs over our own and their preferences over our own. And, you know, here's here's a real current example of this in my family. Um, I've shared, you know, I'm the youngest of five. My, I have a lot of nieces and nephews, big, big family. And um, my sister, who cares for my mother, my mother lives with my sister, her daughter was getting married this summer in Israel, one of her daughters. And um, I am extremely close to this niece. She... Um, is the same age as my daughter. They're, they've been like the best of friends. She has spent many, many, many nights in my house. We're, we're, she is probably one of my closest family relations, my niece. Um, and everybody was going to Israel for my niece's wedding. Um, my brothers, my sister, my sister's family, cousins, everybody. My mother has dementia. My mother is not able to travel. And um, and so I I stayed behind to take care of my mom. And um, I have to tell you, I was initially I knew to do it because I believed it was God's will. I I you know I heard step up and offer, and I did. But I was pissed when I was offering, and I was full of resentment. And I kept feeling like I was Cinderella being left behind the ball, you know. Um, and I would keep telling myself over and over again how close I am with my niece and this isn't fair, over and over and over again. And then I began to pray in earnest. And I realized, um, you know, my initial prayer, right, was God, let them do my way. And my way was, why is my niece getting married in Israel? She should have a wedding here. And she could do something small over there for his family, but do something big here. And I stopped praying that prayer. And instead, my prayer was, God, change my heart. Help me so that I want to do what you want me to do. Because that's my third step prayer. I want, I want my thoughts to be God's thoughts. I want my desires to be God's desires. And I asked God, change my heart so that I want to do the assignment. And I got this feeling in my prayer. I mean, it was overwhelming. I thought about my dad 
And all of a sudden I had this thought come over me that if I were given the opportunity to spend a week alone, just me and my dad, a whole week together, <laughs> while my whole family was away and I got and I would have to miss something, would I ha would I would I make that trade to have my dad back one more week with me? And absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, I was like, Of course I would. And then I realized, or God helped me say, well, you have that right now with your mom. And all of a sudden, it went from, I have to do this, to I get to do this. And I realized, you know, this time with my mom, our earthly time, is short. I don't know how many more years my mom has. And at this point, my mom still knows me. Um... Most of the time, I'm pretty sure she knows who I am, and at least she knows she loves me when she's not quite sure who I am. Her emotions towards me have not gone away. And I have to say, the practicing of the unselfishness, exerting that effort, changed me inside. I did not for one second, while they were gone, feel any jealousy, no resentment, no envy, nothing. I actually felt grateful for the time to be with my mom. And I also felt really happy that my sister was able, first of all, I felt so grateful for my sister who's been doing so much for us and my mom. And, and I felt grateful that I had this opportunity. Um, you know, in the past, the place that I behaved the worst was always in the privacy of my own home. I was always outwardly kind to strangers. I put on a fake smile. I baked the cupcakes for the PTA. I spent time with everyone else's kids, whether it was in the classroom or being the Girl Scout leader. I put on great elaborate parties and shows and events. I would do these huge things. Um, and then I gave my family the worst of me. I threw temper tantrums. I let my husband take on much of the household responsibilities. And that has to be addressed in the family afterward. That I need to be the kind of mother, wife, daughter that I think God would have me be. Because it's not spiritual to ignore my family, to give to other people, right? It's, it's supposed to be the family first. Um, page 127 says that, Family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated arguments, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. So when we look to discuss things with our families, we have to be looking to build up, not tear down. And I have to be gentle in my demeanor, gentle in my words. And if I'm not able to talk about something without arguing, then I wait until my emotional sobriety is back in check. And if it looks like I've gone quiet, um, I've, been, I've been running my mouth my whole life. <laughs> I've always been really, uh, I've never stopped talking from a very little girl. Um, so if, I, if part of like my you know, recovery means that I get a little bit quiet, like it's okay, right? It's really okay. Um, you know, the other thing that... Um, I've used in my family to run the show is I've used self-pity as a weapon. 
You know, um, if, if, if you expect others to give you permission to act in ways that are hurtful and unkind and selfish because you've experienced a hard time, that's self-pity. You know, and, and I have had um, a number of tragic, painful losses, and that's just the truth because, you know, I have not been able to run this show where I've never suffered um, and because I'm human. You know, and and but there's something different between self-pity and grief, um, and I think sometimes it gets confusing. You know, grief is not a defect. Grief is a normal response to a loss, and being sad is not a defect. You know, grief, I, I would say, you know, causes us to temporarily retreat into ourselves, but it allows us to be comforted, and at some point, it invites others back in. When I'm in self-pity. I keep the wall up. I say, don't, don't come in. Don't come near me. Um, you know, it's, it's a response. I would say for me, self-pity was a response to grief that prolonged my pain. It pushed people away. It, and it caused me to resent the rest of the world because it continued to spin on its axis, even though I was in pain. Um, and that's the difference, I would think, between self-pity and self-justification. And, and I would say you know it when you hear yourself say, I have every right not to blank, or I have every right to blank. And, and I would say fill in the blank with the things you know you should do or know that you should not do. And that's when you would know that you're living in self-pity. And you know, for me and the family before, I showed up at every family event with my mental lists of hurts and grief, and um, and I would show up at my dinner table that way. And what that had me do um, was um, sit in the parking lot in, you know, in my car and binge, because that's the way that I dealt with my self-pity. Page 128 says that I'm giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. And, you know, a guiding principle are any principles or precepts that guide an organization through its life in all circumstances, irrespective of changes um, in its goals, its strategies, um, that it doesn't change. Guiding principles don't change, regardless of what's going on. My guiding principle is that I have to be giving. So if you think about a guiding principle, it's the principles that you lean on when you need guidance. Meaning when I need help, when there's bumps, and like what's the point of, of a principle if I don't apply them when they're needed most of all? Um, and for me, that's what it means to be other-centered, that if that's my guiding principle, then I practice it not just where it's easy in the fellowship, but where it's more difficult in the family. Um, you know, page 128 talks about... Um, spiritual intoxication, that we become enthusiasts sometimes about, um, uh, you know, it, that we've indulged in spiritual intoxication, drunk on spiritualism, like a gaunt prospector belt drawn in over the last ounce of food or a pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds that we feel we've struck something better than gold, and for a time he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. And he may not see at once that he has 
barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. You know, and then further down it says that a spiritual life which does not include his family obligations may not be so spiritual after all. And then, you know, and then we're promised that the spiritual infancy will quickly disappear. So here's what it was like, right? I can talk too much about spiritual matters. I can get really excited about this program. Um, I can get excited about my relationship with God. And I have gone too far with my family. You know, they're less impressed by my talking about spiritual matters, and they're more interested in how I behave. I need to behave spiritually fit. They need to see God in me and not hear God from me, you know. And um, and so, you know, I here's an example, right? I'm I'm I've got this meditation practice which is really important to me, and I I don't you know I don't skip it. I I pretty much don't skip it. But I have actually made my family late for events because. Um, because I couldn't, I couldn't be agreeable and adapt my meditative practice. And, um, you know, really nice that I've gotten in touch with God, that I felt, you know, aligned and connected. But now, um, you know, I made my family late for something, um, and that I have to be careful of, right? Page 130 says that this dream world has been replaced by a great sense of purpose accompanied by a growing consciousness of power of God in our lives. We've come to believe he would like us to keep our heads in the clouds with him, but that our feet ought to be firmly planted on earth. That is where our fellow travelers are, and that is where our work must be done. These are the realities for us. We found nothing incompatible between a powerful spiritual experience and a life of sane and happy usefulness. So, I've come to find that my great purpose absolutely includes my family. Yes, I can pray and meditate. I, you know, I like to light my incense and it, and I explore my God consciousness. And But um, if there's no dinner on the table ever, <laughs> and I don't make time for my mom, um, and I don't, like, you know, shut off the a meeting and listen to my son talk to me, like, what good is that, you know, that I need to have seen and happy usefulness? Um, you know, for me, the day has come and it's repeatedly come where my spiritual connection and my faith was a gift for my family. That, you know, all my years of talking about my spiritualism, um, you know, I would say for years, you know, I would sort of say this thing that, you know, there's a God and he's got a purpose for us and nothing happens by mistake and um, everything is for the ultimate good. And then there came a time when we were really in a bad situation with my daughter and, you know, I cried to my husband. I said, this is never going to get better. This is terrible. I, I, This is horrible. This is awful. And, you know, my husband, who I thought had been, you know, kind of ignoring my spiritual stuff all these years, said, um, wait, you never say that. He's like, come on, what do you always say, Mel? Um, he's like, you always say there's a plan, that God has a plan for us, and it's, and it's infinitely better than anything we could have imagined. And I was like, I couldn't believe, there's my husband, quoting, you know, the big book, back to me. And 
And I asked him, you know, do you want me to say that? And he said, yeah, actually, I do. And I realized, you know, um, my words actually were not falling on deaf ears. Um, Page 132, we aren't a glum lot. You know, if newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. We try not to indulge in cynicism over the state of the nations, nor do we carry the world's troubles on our shoulders. So how do we practice this? I'm not cynical. I'm trusting. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful about the state of the world. I actually try to be hopeful about the state of the world. I try to be. You know, I I try to be, like, eternally optimistic. And you might, to others, it might look like I'm stupid, you know, or naive, or I don't see the truth around me. I'm not stupid. I'm not naive. It's a decision. It's a decision that I want to keep my eyes fixed on being positive. Cheerfulness and laughter make for usefulness. That outsiders are sometimes shocked when we burst into merriment over a seemingly tragic experience of the past. But why shouldn't we laugh? We've recovered, and we've been given the power to help others. Right? Everybody knows that those in bad health and those who seldom play do not laugh much. So let each family play together or separately as much as their circumstances warrant. We are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. I love that. God wants me to be happy, joyous, and free. Avoid deliberate manufacture of misery, but if trouble comes, cheerfully capitalize it as an opportunity to demonstrate his omnipotence. I'm supposed to be happy. I did not recover, so I would be miserable. We laugh together. We lovingly tease each other in my family. My husband loves to chide me whenever I order food at a restaurant. He laughs because I order the exact same meal regardless of where we go. They all just sort of, you know, parrot it when I'm about to order. Um, And I laugh too. You know, my son and I love to hike together. I kayak. I swim in the ocean. I do all sorts of things for fun. I go to concerts. I dance. We work in the yard together. For me, that's how I made the real amends. That's how I continue to. I engage and interact with my family, and I add joy. And I know that my creator wants me to enjoy this world he's created. I believe that that's one way we honor God, and it's how we carry the message. People are attracted to those that are a demonstration of joy. And the greatest gift that I can give my family and my entire community is to be upbeat and cheery and optimistic. And today, you know, that smile that I wear, it is real, right? And why shouldn't I smile? I have been set free. And with that, I'll pass. Oh, Melissa, thank you so much for such an inspiring, hopeful message this morning. Uh, just thank you so much for your generosity. So we're going to uh, we're going to transition to we, – we, we go to the top of the hour to uh, – to uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but we're going to transition to a Q&A for a time, and we'll get Melissa's contact information at, at the end of the recorded period, too, if you need to, if you'd like to reach out to her, if you need to get to your question. Let me give you the share ID for Melissa's presentation this morning. That number is 20,595. That's 20595. If you have a question for Melissa, 
Um, what you're going to do is you're going to press uh, star one to unmute your phone uh, and give me your first name uh, and last initial. Who has a question? Polly R. Anne Marie L. Orchid. Loretta H. Okay, let me tell you what I heard so far. Polly Anne Marie Loretta. Who else? Mary Lee R. Mary Mary Lee. In Oregon. Was it Anne? Okay, I got Polly, Anne Marie, Loretta, Mary Lee, and I heard somebody else. I thought it was Anne, but I might have missed that. Okay, let's let's go with these questions right now. It might have been Morgan. Okay, so let's go with Polly, Anne Marie, Loretta, Mary Lee, and Morgan. Polly, you're up. Good morning. Thanks for can you hear me? Okay, I'm yeah. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Melissa. This is one I will keep handy for sponsors and for myself. So I want to be quick because we don't have that much time. I, I was really intrigued by something you said early on, which is when things, meaning I think relationship dynamics, don't bother you as much. And I want to ask if you had someone in your family, in your extended family, maybe, or maybe just in your life, you mentioned your job, with whom you have very challenging, long-term, hard dynamics, and that this person is still kind of always wanting to fight, to criticize. So I get, you, you gave us lots of tips on how to, you know, the sickness, fair, this and that, how not to jump in. But do you have a particular relationship that astounds you because where before it felt like you were sucker punched, it doesn't bother you so much. And that process of, you know, you're not just saying, I, sh I can't, you know, you're, you're reciting the sick man's prayer, you're reciting the same princess prayer, whatever, you're saying, I can't jump into this, I get that. But when you have some healing from a really, really long-term hard relationship, or maybe it's even a bullying, like you've received some bad stuff from someone else and they're still doing it. That, thanks very much. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay, great. I 100% do. So, so um, remember I was talking about my niece's um, wedding and going, right, my, I've had a, I used to have a very difficult time with my brother-in-law and, um, and he's still, he's still the same. And that relationship 100% is totally different. In fact, um, in the midst of all this, he um, called me and laid into me right before I was coming to stay at their house to, you know, care for my mom um, about a particular thing. And he told me that I was selfish and, and, I mean, he called me a name. And I, and my entire way to react to this man is so incredibly different. And because I reacted different... And I, I said, wait, 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 why, why are you fighting with me? I'm not, I'm not fighting with you. Um, within a moment, it went from he started telling me all these other people that he's having a problem with right now. And I realized in that moment, because I did not respond and react, but I actually was able to have tolerance and not look to win the fight or worry about being taken advantage of, how dare he speak to me like that, I, I took a different approach. Within a moment, he was actually confiding in me what was going on with him, and I realized it had nothing to do with me. He was just 
having a problem. And um, that relationship, I cannot, I mean, it has healed 110%. That's just like one of many examples. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Polly. Okay, next up is Anne-Marie with a question from Melissa followed by Loretta. Anne-Marie, good morning. Anne-Marie, press star one. Sorry, I thought I had already admitted. That's um, okay. I just say, <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much. I So much of what you said resonated with me, and it's exactly what I needed to hear this morning. Um, I guess the question I have for you is I um, struggle with one of my daughters um, who just that just heads all the time. She's 15. And um, when I am trying to work the program and, and not respond, like you have shared, um, she just, uh, will continue to, to come at me until I just I get triggered and I often will give in. I'm just wondering if you have any experience with that. I know you just shared a good example, but um, sometimes kids are a little bit different than adults mm-hmm. um, in sort of how maybe you handle that. So thank you. Yeah, so I think, you know, um, we have to have patience. I don't kn- Like, I don't know what dynamic you've been modeling for them, right? But if you've been modeling a a yelling match back and forth, she hasn't learned this new dance yet, right? So she's still, and that's the way that she knows to relate to you. You know, I would say, like, without, you know, I want to be careful not to get into parenting advice, um, but when it gets heated, like, I, my kids can't speak to me like that. It's not acceptable. Like, I don't, and I, and I, I don't yell, like, that's just, and I would drop for myself, (laughs) maybe because I'm a teacher, I drop my voice, I actually get quieter, and I say, you can't speak, you may not speak to me like that, that's not acceptable, you need to change your tone. I I get quieter, um, and I, or I exit the conversation, you know, Um, because, like, you know, they say, like, um, they're, you know, they're pressing your buttons, but you're holding the remote. You're the one. If you, you know, but, and again, it says patience. So it's going to, it might take your daughter a really long time to, and if she's a teenager, she's full of her own, you know, teenage angst. Um, I would say, you know, the less you engage back, the more you demonstrate your principles, and, and, and I would pray, ask God for guidance. You know, this is, this is one woman's guidance. I would sooner start praying, ask God, how does God want you to parent this daughter? Oh, yeah, with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Okay, Loretta with the question, and followed by uh, Mary Lee. Loretta, good morning. Good morning, Larry, and good morning, Melissa. I hear your love on your heart. Um, this month, the principal is love, so I just I heard it in your share. My question is, you talked about the long period of reconstruction ahead, and I just want to know what your daily action plan is working this program so it's way measured. You have a family. You do program. You have a husband. You have a job. Da, 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 da. And I just wondered how you navigate that with your higher power and your action plan uh, just so that, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, 
Okay. So thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yep. So I have I have a specific day of the week that I I is to my mom. You know, I go to work. It's generally, you know, it it might change based on her um, caregiver. She's got a caregiver that comes certain days. Um, that is, I do not attend meetings that day. I don't do service on a meeting that day. I don't, um, I, I, you know, if I'm going to speak with a sponsee, it's going to have to be a flexible ability. Like, that day is for her. Um, I have certain days that I set aside that, and times that I set aside that I won't, take phone calls. I don't, you know, I, I, I have to have weight and measured, um, way of working this program. Um, and, and I would say my daily practice is I ask God, like I ask in the morning, direct, direct me, show me what to do today. And, you know, I don't have to worry necessarily about next week, what it's going to, I go back to work, everything changes. Um, God doesn't give me, I find God doesn't give me the directions 10 days in advance because I believe he wants me to go to him every day. <laughs> so at least once a day, if not more. I, I really, I put that in my prayer. We're told, you know, that we, um, that we ask in our morning meditation that we'd be shown all throughout the day, right? And, and so, um, you know, and when we make our plan for the I can't think of the word, we consider I consider my plans for the day. So those are plans that are made with pencil, but um, but I really I I kind of there's there has to be flexibility around it. Um, with that, I pass. Thanks, Loretta. Okay, Mary Lee, you're up next with a question followed by Morgan. Good morning. Good morning. This is Mary Lee in recovery with uh, God's grace just so grateful. You have answered my question three different ways. I especially appreciate the button being pushed and I have the remote. So could you give me some insight on how you work on forgiveness and knowing that that dog still bites? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, you know, forgiveness does not mean, um, and I think it's like forgiveness does not mean that I say it's okay. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that I um, that I like it, right? But it's I, I'm set free from from the burden of it. So, what do I do specifically? You know, um, my dear friend taught me to say. Um, not just the sick man's prayer, because there's a little bit, I feel there's a judgment in that, like, ugh, they're sick, but spiritually developing. And one of the one of the things that I do to help me is I visualize the person as developing. And I think about the person that's giving me the greatest difficulty, like a developing child. I think about them spiritually like they're a toddler. And if I can envision them, and I even try to picture them, what might they look like? when they were little, when they were really little. And oftentimes, you know, hurt people hurt people. If they're hurting me and they bite, they must have been hurt. And if I can picture them as a child who's hurt, who's being hurt, um, I, I seem to have greater compassion for them. And when I can have compassion for them, 
I don't feel I don't feel their painful bite like like a dog you know like a rabid dog attacking me it almost feels like little puppy teeth you know it doesn't hurt me so much anymore when I can and that I just you know again I go to God I ask God for strength um yeah with that I pass thanks Mary Lee okay Morgan it's your turn what question do you have this morning Morgan, press star one. Okay. Uh, perhaps there isn't a Morgan on the line or, but okay. So we, I'll tell you what, we have time for maybe two more questions. Who, who has Elena, a question please. for Elena? And who else? Carolyn. Carolyn, okay. Let's go with that. So two more questions here. Elena, what question do you have? Good morning, Larry, um, and good morning, mm-hmm. Melissa. Thank you so much, and I uh, do want you to know that I totally benefit from whatever you say in these lines um, on a daily ba- Well, not on a daily basis, but whenever you share and I listen. So my question is this. I heard you say that I might have misunderstood, but I don't think so because I totally related to that, that um, – you don't necessarily want well not that you don't necessarily want or know to help others um but rather helping yourself and to for me it's true for me and for me means selfishness and um and you know we will always be selfish because we're not god but i would like you to give me some ideas um about how you do that to to kind I, of i, missed, I think from i that. missed i think i missed what you were asking could you just that I don't necessarily want to say, ask that. Okay, so here's my question. Here's my question, okay? So how do you um, move and shift from selfishness um, to others? How do I move and shift from selfishness to others? Into helping others. Yeah, I mean, look, sometimes it's effort, right? Sometimes it's exerting effort, but... I you know I have to say that um that I mean the crazy thing and like you know in the chapter working with others where it says it becomes the bright spot helping others becomes the it there is something weird that happens like when I take the action sometimes that are contrary to what I want to do my my loving creator is so incredibly loving that he actually takes the things that I have to do and he makes them what I like to do. I, that really has been my experience, that um, that what was hard in the beginning doesn't feel hard after. Like today, like my favorite, I remember it used to be hard to, you know, to work with others. It was like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Now it's like, I love it. It's, it's one of the greatest, you know, gifts I have, one of the greatest things I can do. Um, I think through effort, Elena, until, until our heart changes. We take the action and God changes the heart. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the question, Elena. Okay, with our final question this morning, Carolyn, good morning. Good morning, Larry. Um, thank you so much for your service, and of course, Melody, or Melissa, too. Um, my question is about my relationship with my husband. 
he has a bit of a temper, and sometimes he falls off the handle a bit. And uh, he can even criticize the program and saying it's become an obsession. Anyway, I have learned from being recovered that what I should do in those situations is not engage. So I'll just kind of listen to him, and you know, when he kind of calms down a little bit, uh, we just go about our day. And maybe I do a ten step if I need to. But I'm wondering if I am kind of um, teaching him, you know, to treat me badly. Like, am I setting this up as, you know, mm-hmm. you know, this really works clearly because, you know, Carolyn's being more recovered. Um, I don't want to, you know, make him think I'm a, a punching bag. And there was mm-hmm. a situation mm-hmm. recently when we were in a car together and he started uh, complaining about my program and saying that I was obsessed and I need more interest. And if I could have, I would have walked away. But what I did was I said, I think we should stop talking right now because this is really upsetting me. And he, mm-hmm. he respected that. But anyway, how do I teach okay. my husband and others to treat me right? Thank I you. think you just did it. I think I think communicating. I mean, I look, I don't, I don't have tremendous experience in that area. Um, neither of us have big tempers. But, you know, I grew up in a house where there was a lot of that. And... Um, and I know how I react when people. I'll just share what I did had with a coworker who treated me that way. She she screamed at me um, in the hall and um, and and you know pointed at me and spoke in, in a way that I it's not acceptable. Um, and I did tell her in a calm voice, um, "I'm walking away. It's not acceptable the way you're speaking to me." And that was it. I mean, I you know how you're going to work that out with your husband. Um, you know you. I, I don't know if, you know, this, I don't know what, what life has in store for you, right? And, and you might, it might require outside help. Sometimes things do. Um, but I know for myself, I am not, I'm not servile. You know, so there is something in between. Um, I can calmly communicate. I don't, you know, I think you did it. I think you did it um, over time. And then we just, you know, Pray for God to relieve us and do those ten steps because it makes us uncomfortable. Um, yeah, that I'll pass. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for the question, Carolyn. And Melissa, thank you once again. Uh, we're just uh, very generous with your time this morning and your wisdom. We, we so appreciate that, a lot of gratitude. Uh, so we're going to close. Um, as we do, I'm going to read uh, from page 164 in the big book. We'll get Melissa's contact information um, after the recorded and uh, recorded uh, portion. And again, I'll give the share ID number. That's 20,595. That's for this morning's presentation, 20595. So 164, our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you 